when I was uh, in my third year of Greek at Union, my senior year, um, thing is, at Union, I was a religion and Greek major. That's what my major was. And when you start Greek at uh, a religious school like Union, there are lots of people in the class. Uh, we had like three sections of Greek. There were like 40 in each class. It's so 120 people. By the time you get to third year Greek, there are four total still there. And so our third year Greek class, we, would, we didn't meet in a classroom. We didn't have a classroom to meet in. We met in the uh, theology faculty's workroom around their conference table. And so you go in there, four of us, we'd sit there, the professor, and this is all you did in that class. That's, you would bring your Greek New Testament, and he would tell you what to have translated before you got to class. You would sit there with your Greek New Testament, you would read your translation, and he would tell you the many areas you were wrong. And that was the class. So he, I remember first day he said, we got there, he gave us a syllabus, that's what we're going to be doing, because we realized, we didn't have any textbooks. Like, we, you know, how do you, often do you have a class where it has no textbooks? He said, no textbooks, just come. And so we sat down and he said, this is what you're going to do, you're going to translate, I'm going to tell you where we need to make corrections, and by the end of it, you will have translated the entire book of the Bible on your own. And so the book that we did was First Thessalonians, and of course the first person that had to present was me. Right now, it, that doesn't sound. That sounds worse than it really is. There are only four of us. It's not like we could hide a lot of places. And so I was given First Thessalonians chapter one, verses one through ten, and I had a week to translate it and then present it back to the class. I'll never forget that I was working through that translation, really not understanding where I was going or what I was doing, just fearful of that moment when he's going to say, "Okay, Lyle, read me what you've done." And you're sitting there, you, you part, you're sitting there holding and thinking, I'm translating the Bible. This is kind of serious business. And in the midst of that, I came across a word that I didn't recognize. Now, at that point in my career, and it's not true today, I literally had hundreds of Greek words that I knew by sight. Now, that's mostly gone now. But at that moment, there were few words that I would see that I didn't recognize. So I had to look it up. I had to go to the dictionaries. I had to look at the forms. I had to do all that kind of thing. If you've ever done a foreign language, I had to tear it apart. It had a prefix on it. it had an ending on it. I had to do all of that. And when I got through with that word, it was a little moment when God just kind of spoke into my heart. It's 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 8. You don't have to turn there. We're going to turn somewhere else, but I'll tell you what it says. It says that we have heard, that we know, that we are aware that the word of the Lord has sounded forth from you throughout your region and, in fact, through regions that aren't even a part of yours. Now, the reason that word stood out is because that word there that is sounded forth is a word that literally means the sound circled back and forth again and again and again. It's almost like, like, it's almost like an echo but not an echo that you hear and then fades away. It is a reverberating echo that goes on and on and on and on. And so when I, re, when I translated that word, looking for a word, the word that I used was the word resound. Just over and over again. And the point Paul was making is that this group of people had become so passionate in their faith have become so on fire for the Lord, have become so known for their faith that it resounded, that it echoed, that it boomed was another word that you could use throughout the entire area. And in that moment, studying for my first time of translating in my third year Greek class, 
I remember saying, Lord, I want to live a life that resounds. And I want to be a part of a church that resounds. You add that to the verse that I've used many times here, Isaiah 26, 8, that um, happened at a conference. I first heard it, but it's become my life verse, which is, yes, Lord, walking in the ways of your truth, we wait for you, for your name and your renown. Another idea of a reverberating understanding of who God is. We want that to be the desire of our souls. And for the last 15 years as I've pastored churches, my goal has been to create churches where the gospel resounds from who we are. But the question becomes, okay, so what does that look like? What do you mean by that? What does it mean for my life to resound, for my life to speak forth, for my life to shout about the gospel to all that would hear around me? What does it mean when we talk about on the wall out there to be passionately devoted followers of Jesus Christ who lead others to follow Jesus, who glorify God by our lives? What does it mean? And I ran across this definition this week and I just love it because it's simple. It gets to the point, but it states something huge in our lives. And we're going to be answering a big question today and it revolves around what does it look like for my life to be on mission for God? But here's what uh, one pastor says, that what it means to follow Jesus is to do what you do well to the glory of God, somewhere strategic for the mission of God. To do what you do well for the glory of God, somewhere strategic for the mission of God. I mean, you've got to get a job somewhere, someday. If you're a young person, you're going to get a job someday, hopefully, right? Parents, can I get an amen there about your kids? There we go. You're going to get a job and go somewhere, right? You've got to live somewhere. You've got to be around somebody. You've got to shop somewhere. You've got to get gas somewhere. You've got to get groceries somewhere. Why not, wherever you're living, wherever your job is, whatever it is you're doing, you do it well. You do it excellent. You, you try your hardest to work good, but you do it in a way that gives glory to God, and then you do it strategically for the mission of God. Which leads to the big question that I want to ask today. It's a big question. It's like a huge question. We're not the only ones asking this question. In fact, I'll use some statistics in a minute that show that we're not the only ones in this church asking that question. But the question becomes, how do I know what God wants from me? How do I know where God wants to use me? What does it mean to live strategically for Him? What does it mean to do what I do for the glory of God? I don't know whether you realize this or not, but... People all over the country are asking how their lives can have an impact on the country and the world around them. I read a study this week about teenagers, high school students. High school students were given a questionnaire and a list of things about their future and asked which three are the most important to you. There was one of those tests that asked, you know, pick the best three answers. Do you all remember those multiple choice tests? Like I always liked the one that had one answer. Can I get an amen in the house of the Lord today? I never liked to pick the best answer or answers. I didn't like those. This was a three question. They gave him a list of things and said, which of these are most important to you? These were not Christian students. This wasn't in a Christian environment. This was high school students, public high school students. And here are things that did not make the list of the most important. Only 18% of the high school students said achieving fame or public recognition. Only 25% said working at a high-paying job. Only 27% said owning the latest technology and electronics. Only 28% said owning a large home. So those are things that did not make the top of their list. 28%, 27%, 26%. 
Listen to what did. 77% having a clear purpose for living. 82% having one marriage partner for life. 84% having close personal friendships. And 96% picked as one of their top three making a difference in the world. Like the things that we think they're concerned about, the things that we think people out there are concerned about, non-Christians, people that are not believers, they're not. They want to know how to make a difference. How do I live the purpose? How do I do what God wants me to do or whatever being out there wants me to do? Now, inside the church, we understand that's Yahweh, that's God, that's through Jesus Christ, our Savior. But I think most people, regardless of their age, regardless of where they come from, really just want to know, what am I supposed to be doing? I mean, think about this. What if, and you have one, you have a reason for being here, you have a purpose for being here, we're going to talk about that in a minute, but what if I had an envelope on the stage right now, it had your name on it, and it had specific instructions for how you should live out your life on purpose for this week, and I was able to hand it to you, signed by Jesus, sealed by the Holy Spirit, the angel Gabriel brings it down so you know it's from on high, and it says this is your purpose for this week. How awesome would that be? I mean, day by day, Monday, here's what you need to do. Tuesday, here's what you need to do. Specific role. Here's what we want to talk to. I can't give you a schedule. I'm not going to schedule your life for you this week. But I can give you some principles that Paul talks about that help us to see what are we supposed to be doing. If you've got your Bibles, turn to Romans chapter 15. You've got it either a copy with you, a book form, or you've got it on an app or a device. Romans chapter 15. In Romans chapter 15, we're going to look at how Paul found his specific purpose in life. I mean, his is a very specific purpose. And while his calling will not be your calling, because it's his calling, not yours, he lays out a path for us to see how we can apply it. And I want to apply it for you in a couple of ways. I want to apply it to you in your personal life. What does this look like at my work, at my home, at my job, those kind of things. But I also want to apply it to how it fits in with you here. Now, let me just say something to you. If you're here and you're not a part of First Baptist Goodlettsville, there are going to be parts of this sermon that don't apply to you. And you can just ignore them and say, well, that doesn't apply to me, all right? Now, I'm going to tell you a little bit later, they do apply to you, but maybe not here. But there are going to be some specific things about First Goodlettsville that I want to talk to our people about a little bit today. You can just listen in and, and, uh, and be a part of, of uh, holding us accountable to doing them. And we're going to talk about what does it look like in our personal lives and our lives around where we are and... And then here at church, what does it look like? And we're going to move towards uh, talking at the end of the message and also um, before you leave today about a day that's special for us at First Baptist in two weeks where you can be an active part of what we're talking about. A day that we call a day of extravagant giving. It's become a little bit of a tradition here. The truth is in a Baptist church, if you do it once, it becomes a tradition. We've done it now. This will be three times. So it's like we can't get rid of it anymore, right? So we're going to do a day of extravagant giving in two weeks, and we'll talk a little bit more about that, but I want to ask you how you can be a part of that. Romans chapter 15, starting in verse 14, says this. My brothers, Paul, when he writes to the churches of Thessalonica, Colossae, any of those churches, Ephesus, when he writes to churches, he always includes them as family. It's not just my friends. It's not just those people out there that I know. It's not just those church people. This is my brothers. This is my family. This is my crew, my brothers. I myself am convinced about you that you also are full of goodness, 
filled with all knowledge and able to instruct one another. He says, listen, he's just spent 14 chapters giving one of the deepest theological writings you can ever find. And he says, I wrote all that, but I'm pretty confident you got all the knowledge stuff down. Like, you know what you're supposed to, like, you know the stuff. You know Jesus is Lord. You know Jesus died for your sins. You know that we're all sinners. You know that you have to be saved by grace. And that's it. That the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. That if you believe in your heart and confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, that he will save you. Like, I got it that you know all that. But I want to remind you of a few things that you might be lacking in that I have discovered for myself. And so Paul is saying... I've just spent 14 chapters. It's great. I want you to know we needed that foundation. And there's a reason we needed that foundation. I needed you to understand the gospel for what you need to then do with the gospel. Nevertheless, I have written to remind you more boldly on some points because of the grace given me by God to be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles, serving as a priest of God's good news. My purpose, my purpose My purpose, this is Paul's purpose statement, this is him declaring what God has called him to do, is that the offering of the Gentiles may be acceptable, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. Like, wait a minute, that is, that, I don't understand any of that, okay? Paul's saying, listen, all that theology stuff, that's, that's important, it's foundational, we have to know it. But I wrote about it because I want you to understand why I'm doing what I'm doing and why you need to get in on the act. All that stuff about the gospel reminds me that God has given me great grace. And he's allowed me to be the one to take this gospel to people that are far from him. When we see Gentiles in the New Testament, he's describing anyone that is outside the family of Israel, anyone that is outside a Jewish lifestyle, and that meant anyone that they would have considered far from God. And so he's writing and saying, it's my privilege to be able to share with them about the gospel. I also said something that's just really fascinating and important for us to understand. He says that then he takes this, that he goes and he ministers to the Gentiles. He shares Jesus Christ with the Gentiles. He tells them about the Savior. And then when they come to accept him, when he gives them back to the Lord, when he tells them about Jesus and they accept it, that he is offering them to the Lord as a sacrifice to be acceptable. Now, he's not literally offering them as a sacrifice. You get that, right? What he's saying is that his life, Doing what God has called him to do is his highest form of worship. Now, this is why that's important. God may not have called you to be the greatest missionary to ever live to the Gentiles. Yeah, that's true. But he has called you to be good at what you're doing, best at what you can be best at for the glory of God strategically for the mission of God. And when you do that, you're worshiping the Lord in your highest form. So here's the thing. If you are a really good plumber and the Lord has called you to be a really good plumber, when you are plumbing, when you are unclogging a pipe for the glory of God, you are acting in a form of worship. And those of us who have clogged pipes give glory to God for you. Can I get an amen in the house of the Lord? Amen, Alex. 
If you're a teacher and you're in a classroom with third graders and you're instructing them about what it means to to learn and to live and you're teaching good values and you do it with the love of Christ and in those moments when you can, you share the love of Christ with those kids. That is the highest form of worship you can do. When you offer your life doing what God has called you to do. Paul says, my life, my purpose are these Gentiles and giving them back to the Lord as a sacrifice that is acceptable to him. So what are you doing? What's your job? What's your career? What are your hobbies? And are they done for the glory of God, strategically for the mission of God? Or is it just that thing you do to get a paycheck? Because you serve the Lord in your vocation, you're worshiping Him. He goes on to say in the next verse, Therefore, I have reason to boast in Christ Jesus regarding what pertains to God. In fact, other translations of that I like a little bit better. It says, I have reason to be proud of my work for God. He says, listen, if I'm going to boast, I'm going to boast about what I'm doing for God because God's called me to do it. God blesses it. It is the most important thing I do. And so I will boast in what God has done. For I would not dare say anything except what Christ has accomplished through me to make the Gentiles obedient by word and by deed, by the power of miraculous signs and wonders and by the power of God's Spirit. He said, listen, when I talk about what God is doing through me, I'm not bragging on myself. I'm bragging on God and I am fulfilling what God has called me to do. And then he says this. As a result, I fully proclaim that the good news about the Messiah from Jerusalem all the way around to Illyricum. He says, listen, I've just been following what God asked me to do. He told me to go. I'm going. I'm telling. I'm preaching. And he says this to finish up. My aim, my goal, my purpose is to evangelize where Christ has not been named so that I will not build on someone else's foundation, but as it is written, those who are not told about him will see and those who have not heard will understand. Paul says, I've been saved. I understand the glory of what God has done. I understand the gospel of Jesus Christ. And because of understanding all of that, then I work to do what God's called me to do, which is to share that gospel with people around me. It's interesting to see how personal this is to him. You can just see it in the way he wrote, just in these verses that we read. Grace given to me by God for ministry, my offering, my work for God, what Christ has accomplished through me. I fulfill my ministry, my ambition. Paul's really clear on what his purpose is. And here's where it's very important to understand. That as Paul declares his purpose here to evangelize where Christ has not been named, not to build on someone else's foundation, that is Paul's specific purpose. It wasn't everybody's purpose. In fact, Peter was called to stay in Jerusalem. Apollos was called to build on what others had laid as a foundation. Paul even says, there are times when I wanted to come to you earlier, but I couldn't because I was off doing my work and I was doing the work that God had called me to do. And even though I wanted to do that, I couldn't. He had a clear sense of purpose. Do you? Has God pinpointed for you what you are supposed to do for His kingdom? Well, here's the thing. His sense of purpose came from two things. We're going to share them and then we're going to be done. And the first thing is this. We must understand God's purpose in the world. Paul's understanding of God's purpose in the world helped him to understand his own purpose purpose. 
In verse 20, he says, I make it my ambition to preach the gospel, not where Christ has already been named. He understood that God's purpose, God's identity, God's reason for us being here is to spread the gospel of Jesus Christ to the ends of the earth. You could have expected Paul to start with his conversion experience. He did in other places. But he had come to a place where the conversion experience was a backseat to what was really the purposes of God. And what happens in our lives is too often we want to know the will of God for our lives. And we start by what we're supposed to be doing instead of starting with what is God intending to do. That we must understand God's purpose in the world before we can find our part in the middle of that. And so if you ask somebody, well, what do you want to do when you grow up? What do you want to be when you grow up? If you have a, a student, what are you wanting to do? They'll tell you some good things. I, uh, I want to be a great doctor. I, I want to, I want to uh, help people with heart issues. Or I want to be a, a great lawyer. I want to do pro bono work. Or I want to be a professional athlete so I can buy my mom a home. Or I want to own my own business. Or I want to teach second grade. Or I, I want to just make a good living, have a good family, just raise people right. Or just do my best. Just whatever I do, do my best. And those are all good things. But then oftentimes if you turn around and ask those same people the question, okay, so what does that have to do with God's purpose on this earth? How does that fit into God's purpose in the world? And you'll get a blank stare. Like, I, I don't know, I'm just trying to teach second graders. I'm just trying to make a living. God is doing something on earth He has told us about very clearly in Scripture. And our understanding of our purpose must begin in His purpose. Sometimes we talk about God's will if it's something that's been lost. Like, I'm trying to find God's will. I'm seeking God's will. I'm looking for God's will. God's will is very clear in Scripture. It tells us in uh, his writing to Peter, when Peter that, that Peter's writing, that what is happening there is that God does not desire for anyone to be lost. He desires for all men to be saved. He desires for the gospel to get to the ends of the earth. He desires for your neighbors, for your friends, for your co-workers, for your schoolmates, for the people that are right here in Goodlesville, Tennessee, all the way to the ends of the world, to literally Timbuktu. He desires for every single person on the face of the planet to hear the gospel of Jesus Christ and have the opportunity to respond to that gospel. That is his goal. That is his will. That is his ambition. And if your life is not in some way a part of a grander purpose, primarily the grander purpose of God reaching the lost wherever they may be all over this world, then you're not fulfilling the purpose God has on your life. No matter how good you are at your job, no matter how much money you make, no matter how good your family is, if it's not tied to the bigger purpose, you've missed something. See, Paul realized that when we understand the gospel, when we understand that Jesus saved us, then we are under obligation to tell people about it. In fact, he says this in Romans chapter 1, earlier in the book, he says, I am under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians. I am under obligation both to Greeks and barbarians. The word under obligation there is a term that you would use when you were severely in debt. So let's just pretend for a moment that you made some mistakes on your taxes and you now owe the IRS half a million dollars. That's not good, right? And let's imagine that somehow, in some way, you receive through an inheritance 50000 Do you get to decide what you do with that $50,000? You can try. Where's that $50,000 going to go? It's going to pay off a little bit of your debt, right? 
You're under obligation to the IRS so that whatever comes in is theirs. Paul feels that way about the Greeks and the barbarians. He says, I am under obligation to the Greeks and the barbarians. Here's the crazy thing. They had never done anything for him. They hadn't done anything. But Paul says, Jesus saved me. They have just as much of a right as I do to hear the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so I'm under obligation. Now here's the truth. There are over a billion people on this planet who have never heard the name of Jesus. And without hearing the name of Jesus, they are destined for an eternity separated from him. You saw David Platt on the video. David Platt says this. Every saved person this side of heaven owes the gospel to every unsaved person this side of hell. Billions of people who have never heard the gospel of Jesus Christ. I want you to imagine for a moment. What if that's where you lived? What if that's where you were born? In a place where Jesus had never been mentioned, when nobody you know knows who Jesus is. And we, those of us who are followers of Jesus, believe and know that the only way to heaven is through a relationship with Jesus Christ. If you were that person who had never heard, would you want someone to come tell you about it? If you're not saying yes, you're not being honest. But how shall they hear unless we go? You know, I'm honest. When I was growing up, there was a moment in my life when I was a teenager, when I was actually in seminary, I mean, uh, college and seminary a little bit, when I just thought about, man, I'm just, this just doesn't sound fair. I mean, God's going to condemn people on other sides of the earth who have never heard who Jesus is. Almost like God's sitting there waiting for them, and as they die on their deathbed, he goes, oh, you, you didn't accept Jesus. And they go, who's Jesus? Oh, too late now. Almost like it, it was unfair that he was holding them to a standard that they didn't even know about. But the truth is, Paul explains throughout the rest of the book of Romans, that's why this is also important in chapter 15, that every single person on the face of the earth is responsible. He says in Romans 1 that every human being has ever lived as a sinner, that they suppress the truth about God, and they, they act like they don't know Him. Romans 1, 18-23 says, Every human being knows about God from creation and their conscience, and our hearts have rejected His authority and glory and stolen it for ourselves. We're not condemned for not hearing about Jesus. We're condemned because we've rejected the authority and the glory of God that we perceived in our hearts. Paul says that every single person on the face of the planet is without excuse. You want to know the truth? The gospel isn't fair. Do you know what fair means? Fair means you get exactly what you deserve. The gospel isn't fair because it gives every single person on the face of the earth a second chance at eternal life. It's not unfair because it sends people to hell. It's unfair because it allows us to go to heaven. And when you understand that, that every person is without excuse, that you've been given the grace of the gospel and you have a decision to make. You can deny that it's true. You can ignore it. Or you can embrace it and begin to live it out. How is your life lined up with the purposes of God? And here's the thing. Once you understand the purpose of God in the world, you then have to ask the question, what's the part I play? We must understand God's specific role for us. Paul's role is not your role. Although most of us in this room, our role is much bigger and bolder and greater than we've already been doing or that we can imagine. It may be here to stay and reach your neighbors 
others right here with, with the gospel of Jesus. It may be a part of some of the mission projects that we do at First Baptist, whether it be to be a part of what's happening um, at the Next Door Ministry in downtown Nashville or Lynch, Kentucky, or Room at the End Ministries on Sunday night here in our own church or Los Angeles mission trip or international trips that we're a part of. It may be to go to an underserved part of your city, our city, in order to serve people that are in desperate need. I'm not sure what your specific part is, but I can tell you that you each have a part. After Paul recognized God's overarching purpose, he then said, how can I play a role in it? His purpose, his calling, his ministry, his offering, his ambition was all about the gospel of Jesus Christ. What's the part you have to play? Paul's was very specific. It was to reach people that had never heard the gospel. What's yours? Well, here's what I can tell you. The first thing I can tell you is that we have really two kind of areas to think about. And the first is that if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, that part of your part of being in God's mission is to be part of a local body of believers that are doing something about it. There are no Lone Ranger Christians in the New Testament. There are no Christians in the New Testament that aren't part of a local body of believers, a local church. If you're here today and you're part of First Baptist Church, Goodlettsville, I'm going to tell you some things in just a minute that you have to be a part of if you call yourself a member of First Baptist Goodlettsville. If you're here today and you're not, you've been visiting, you're here just for today, you may not be called to be a part of this congregation, of this body of believers, of this family, of this church, but if you're a follower of Jesus, you're called to be a part of something, of one of them, of a church. And some of you are in this room and you're like, well, um, I'm not a member of this church. I've been coming for eight years, but I'm not a member of this church. The only word I have for you is join, all right? Be a part. Some of you have been coming for a few weeks and you're saying, I don't know, I don't know. God's called you to be a part of some local body of believers. And if you're a part of First Baptist Church, Gillisville, can I tell you some of the things that you are needing to do to be a part of what God's overall mission is? First of all, you need to give. And when I say give, I mean more than just money, although that's a part of it. I mean time, I mean talent, I mean effort, I mean support, I mean finances. You give. Do you know what you see in every single instance where a church is effective with the gospel of Jesus Christ in the New Testament? You see generous people that are giving completely sacrificially of themselves. You give. That does mean financially. Financially, when you give to this church, when you give your offering to this church, what does that go for? Well, it goes to support a lot of things. It goes to support the ministry here. It goes to support what's happening in this building. It goes to support the staff that you have as a part of this congregation. It goes to support the ministries that are happening, the mission projects that are happening around the city, around the nation, literally around the world. You know, one of the coolest things, you saw that video from David Platt and International Mission Board and the Lottie Moon Christmas offering and all that. One of the coolest things is every time somebody gives to this church, a portion of the money that comes to this church goes to the international mission field to have people reach others for the glory of Jesus Christ with the gospel. And I love that. I was thinking about it this week because the first church that I ever preached in, other than like a youth service, was a church called Evansville Baptist Church. And Evansville Baptist Church is in Evansville, Tennessee, which is a suburb of Southside, Tennessee, which is a suburb of Dyersburg, Tennessee. Right? Evansville is a tiny little community. And Evansville Baptist Church, the first Sunday I ever preached there, there were 14 people there. 
and nine of them were my friends and family. Five people. Now, they were down that Sunday. Normally they have seven, but that Sunday they only had five. They must have heard there was a high school preacher in that day they didn't want to listen to, all right? But I remember on that day, five five people uh, were there listening to the message. I was preaching my heart out. But before I preached, they didn't trust me to do the offering. I guess they were afraid I would mess up the offering for those five people. And so they had somebody come up and do the offering. And I'll never forget this. He stood up on the stage, uh, came up on the platform, and he said, Well, it's time to take up our money. Um, so y'all, got, y'all go ahead and get it out. Betty, go ahead and get ready over there. I know it takes you a second. Um, we're going to pass the plate here in a second. And all you visitors, you can give if you want to. You don't have to, but you can. Uh, we're going to pass the plate. And uh, don't forget that, that the money we give here today, it's going to go to here and here. But some of this money we give here is going to go to the International Mission Board, and it's going to help support missionaries somewhere around the world. I remember even as like a 17-year-old kid thinking, how cool is it that Evansville Baptist Church with five people is helping to support missionaries all around the world. See, the coolest thing about being a Southern Baptist, people ask, well, are y'all Southern Baptist Church? Yes, we're Southern Baptist Church. We believe what Southern Baptists believe, but the coolest thing about being a Southern Baptist Church, the coolest thing is that we partner with thousands of churches to send thousands of missionaries all over the world. Last year, this church, I asked you to give um, sacrificially for the Lottie Moon Christmas offering that goes directly to international missionaries. And you did. I said, let's give more than we've ever given. And we gave more than we've ever given to the Lottie Moon by $15,000. It's awesome. And because of churches like us and because of churches all over the country that did that, the Lottie Moon Christmas offering last year was the largest offering in the history of Lottie Moon Christmas offerings. And because of that, it was $11 million more than they had ever received. And as a result, this year, for the first time in several years, new missionary numbers are being added to the workforce around the world. And that's cool, isn't it? I mean, you, 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 y'all, y'all look at me like that's not cool. That's cool. Like you, because you gave, because you give every week. When you put money in that offering plate, I know some people go, well, it just goes to pay light bills. It does pay light bills. But here's the thing. If we didn't pay light bills, we'd all worship like we did the last two or three weeks. And we wouldn't have voices and it'd be dark in here. Like you got to pay light bills. But it also goes every time somebody gives in this church on a Sunday morning a portion of that of what comes into our offering plates on Sunday mornings, 5% goes out of this place that we don't care where it goes because it goes to the executive committee of the Southern Baptist Convention that then has decided where it goes all over the world, all kinds of agencies, people that are doing great work, North American Mission Board, International Mission Board, the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission, seminaries, schools that are training people to be followers of Jesus Christ and ministers, and it goes to the nations. And because you give, and because you've given, there are people riding up and down the Amazon River telling people that have never heard the gospel of Jesus Christ about Jesus. I saw a cool thing this week. Somebody caught on a drone a group of people in the Amazon River Basin that have never been contacted before. You know where I saw it? I saw it on an IMB website where they just said, Dibs, we're going. We're going to take the gospel to those people. Because of you in sub-Sahara Africa, where poverty and hunger is rampant, 
when you give anything to this church, a portion of that goes to help support missionaries that are in sub-Saharan Africa, that are in Middle Eastern countries where they can't even share their name, that are in Southeast Asia and some of the darkest places in the world, some of the most difficult, hardest-to-reach places. That's because you do your part. And if the millions of Southern Baptists all across this country suddenly decided they weren't going to do their part in giving, the missionary workforce of this world would be decimated. Part of being a member of a church is giving. But it's not just giving of your money. It's giving of your time and your talents and your efforts. Over the next few weeks, there are going to be times that I'm going to say, hey, we need some help with this. We need some volunteers here. We need you to help with something. And I know that I say that, and some weeks I say that, and I'll even say something like, hey, there's a sign-up sheet, like right in the back, right in the middle. You can't miss it. There's a table there. There's somebody standing there to sign up. And I know in your mind you go, whew, I hope people sign up for that. Or I'm glad he's talking to some people that need to work. Listen, if you're a member of First Baptist Goodlesville and I say we need help here, guess who that means? You. Say, that means me. Yeah, some of you didn't even say it. I just saw you. I'm not going to point you out over here on this side over here, all right? It means me. Listen, I believe that the greatest days, as a staff, we're planning, we're praying, we're thinking, and I... I know that we talk about this, but I just believe in an optimistic God that's going to do great and amazing things. And I believe that the greatest days of First Baptist Goesville are still ahead of us. But can I tell you something? They're not going to happen unless it's us. Working together, doing what God's called us to do, filling our particular roles. So why do I know what I'm supposed to do? First of all, there's some stuff that we all ought to be doing. We all ought to be sharing our faith with people around us non-negotiable telling other people about jesus telling our co-workers our friends about the hope we have within giving a defense for what we know like that's non-negotiable that's what we do how we do work here at the church there are just some things that we can do like well i'm just not really called to manual labor right like if it's moving stuff i'm not really called to that now you're all called to that all right we are all called to that but looking for specific things, like you think about, um, there are a couple of things, that, ways to think about it. I like Rick Warren has a great one called Shape. What are your spiritual gifts? What has God gifted you to do? What's your heart about? What do you really care about? You ever had something that you really were passionate, cared about? Maybe this happened to you with family over the last few days. Like there's an issue that you're really passionate about, you really care about, and you share it with them, and they just look at you like, I don't really get it. You ever had that? Like, I don't, what's the big deal? All right? What are you passionate about? What do you have ability to do? What are your passions for? What are your experiences? What has life prepared you for? Another way to think about it is um, what is called a Venn diagram. Y'all know Venn diagrams? You're like, thank you, Alex. Some of you were like, you were told me there was not going to be math involved in this today, all right? So Venn diagrams, you have three circles, two circles, whatever, and you look at what the intersection of those is. And so imagine a Venn diagram circle here that is your ability, what you're good at, what you can do. Think about your affinity, what you like to do, what what really moves your heart. And then think about affirmation. What have people told you you're good at? What have people said? Man, I can see you doing that. And you put those three together, your ability, your affinity, your affirmation, and you find your sweet spot of what God's called you to do. That's you. And I can't tell you specifically what God's called you to do, but I can tell you what it'll involve. It involves you sacrificially serving others for the glory of God. 
It will involve you giving of your time and your talent and your money and your ability for the glory of God. It will involve you sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ with other people. I read a story this week that just kind of blew me away. I'm going to read you part of it. It comes from the Telegraph. It's about an Italian miner who retired after 35 years. Listen to what it says. Carlo Cani started to work as a miner in 1980, but soon found that he suffered from claustrophobia and hated being underground. So he started doing everything he could do to avoid hacking away at the coalface, inventing an imaginative range of excuses for not venturing down the mine in Sardinia where he was employed. He pretended to be suffering from amnesia and hemorrhoids, rubbed coal dust in his eyes to feign an infection, and on occasion staggered around pretending he had had too much to drink. At the age 60, he managed to accumulate enough years of sick leave, apparently with the help of doctors, was able to stay at home and do what he loved, listening to jazz. An Italian miner who didn't work a day in his life after the first two or three weeks, retired after 35 years. Now I heard that. My first thing was, that's a pretty good gig if you can get it right. You pretend to work, you get paid for it. But then I thought immediately, how many believers accept the Lord, walk down the aisle, start their walk with the Lord, and then spend the next 35 years making excuses why they're not doing what God called them to do? And then they die and they retire, having never really worked a day in their life. You see, if your job, if your life is not grafted into the grand design of God's plan for the salvation of people, then you're not really showing up for work. So my question to you is, what's your part? What's your part in God's plan? Let's pray together.